We're always thankful for our array of song leaders that lead us in these beautiful hymns of song of singing. Just think about some of the words we sang together already today. God is love. And we sang about we're going to see the King someday. We also talked about walking in sunlight. You know, all three of those songs as we began our service have tremendous meanings behind them. And I hope each of us are in such a position we can appreciate the blessedness and joy of singing with spirit and with the understanding to borrow the words of 1 Corinthians 14, verse number 15. As you come today to a consideration of the Word of God with me, we'll turn our attention to the 116th Psalm for just a moment. And I might even say it's not the fullness of the psalm, it's really just one of the verses in it. It's that verse that Brother Wayne read for us a moment ago, was verse number 12. In fact, as you look at the wall behind me, you can appreciate that it'll be that particular verse that'll capture our attention today as we develop some thoughts about not only the question that's asked, but what it might be that'll be our answers in regard to it. As we begin the lesson this morning, let me first of all suggest with you an introductory slide, one that'll in some way at least motivate us to reflect upon the question as well as some of the issues connected to our response. Isn't it true that one of the things the Word of God challenges each of us with is this reality, the needfulness of always being faithful, regardless of what the circumstances in life may be, and we all know that can be challenging. It may be sickness, it may be illness, it may be family matters, it could be issues at work, and the list goes on and on. And yet you and I are told to be faithful unto death, Revelation 2 verse number 10, and we each know very well, if we are of any age at all, that the challenges and the circumstances and situations of life can often be very strong. Paul knew about that. In 1 Corinthians 16, verse 9, he said, There are many adversaries. He didn't say there might be. There someday could be. He knew about them then and there. And so Paul knew about it. Isn't it true that in 2 Corinthians 11, verses 23 and following, he listed many of the particulars that he faced? I would use all that to ask a question of you and me today. If that's what the Christian life is going to be like, if that's going to be characteristic of what it means to be faithful unto death, why do I want to do it? What motivation is there to be faithful knowing that that faithfulness will bring these kind of challenges? Christians are going to be persecuted. Those you know and love may well turn a rather dim eye towards you. Have you had family members that don't quite appreciate the way you look at things? Have you had close friends who ultimately distanced themselves from you because they didn't look at things with the same way you did? Why do we want to be faithful? Let me offer to you a few answers today. In fact, it'll all be motivated by that question that you and I have just read. What shall I render unto the Lord for all His benefits toward me? As you and I develop and devote some time to thinking along that line, why don't I start with this particular set of facts? I call them facts because I think you would too, and it's the way the Bible describes it. And we know the Bible is always right. We understand the Word of God to be direct and straightforward in that it says exactly the way it is and it tells things the way that they are. To be a faithful Christian is going to demand some things of your priorities and mine. 
to seek the kingdom first, Matthew 6, verse 33. To love God with all one's heart, soul, mind, and strength, Mark 12, verse 30. To be a faithful Christian will mean that you and I will not be able to approve many things the world will approve that the world will laud, and that the world will set forward as the way things ought to be done. We can't approve it, and we won't. But that means we shall be separated, distanced, ostracized, looked upon with sometimes ridicule, insult, and blasphemy. But you know, that's what came to the Lord's apostles. It came to the first century saints. It came to all of those through time have been those convicted of, and committed to the way of God. That's how it has been. Jesus directly taught in John 15, 19, The world has hated me, and it will hate you too. You know, the Lord wasn't wrong, and He wasn't lying, and He wasn't telling anything that wasn't the case. And thus, doesn't it follow, as you can see about the middle of that slide, there are going to be some things that will be rather expensive, at least in the eyes of the world. There are things you and I just won't see the way the world sees them, and they're going to look upon it as if you and I are fools, that we're misguided, that we see things not as they really are. And as a result of that, there will be times that they will rather strongly oppose things that you and I stand for. They won't understand. Do you remember any occasions when they didn't understand the decisions the Lord made? When they didn't understand the approaches the apostles took? When they didn't understand the early saints and what the church stood for in the communities in which those congregations existed? In 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 3 and following, Peter directly told those saints to whom he wrote, here are things that you once did and the world expects you still to do and yet you don't do them. Don't you find that to be a very pertinent observation? Those folks at one time had been given to alcohol, but they didn't do that anymore. They may have been given to other kinds of activities including recklessness in life and they didn't do that anymore. And Peter said, they don't understand. They may invite you to participate with them, but you won't. They may invite you to enjoy some of those matters, but you refuse every time. Have you been in a situation like that in life, or maybe you've known of someone in that circumstance? Jesus demands all that you and I have to offer. Our direction in life is not the way maybe that it once was. The way we think, the places we go, the language we use, it's just not the same. Jesus owns our heart now. It is the Lord who directs our pathways, and it is the Word of God that is our banner and our ensign, and it is that which we will absolutely follow. What shall I render unto the Lord for all His benefits toward me? You may notice near the bottom of that slide that the world's treatment of the Master itself can serve as a little bit of a warning and as a bit of an observation for us. In 1 John 3 verse 13, Marvel not, my brethren, if the world hate you. Now when John wrote that, which again was very much near the end of the first century, the Lord had been dead for several decades by then. 
Jesus was no longer here upon earth. And yet, in the midst of that presentation, John was writing to those who themselves were continuing to be persecuted and continuing to be maligned by those among whom they lived. You and I have been rather blessed, I suppose, in so many ways in this country. Founded on a reality of religious freedom, allowing one and all to pursue their appreciation of religion. But don't we know that that could change? And there are already forces at work in many ways that have begun to infringe upon what once was not that way. It continues to be the case. Many of our brothers and sisters living in other countries are today still living beneath a terrible challenge connected to matters like this. What it reminds us is, no matter what the circumstances may become, no matter what the particulars and the details may well be, you and I need to be settled in mind that we will always be faithful, no matter what. What shall I render unto the Lord for all His benefit toward me? As I mentioned earlier, I'd like to offer you a couple of motivating thoughts. If only one of these were the case, it'd be enough to always be faithful. But why don't we look at more than one? And it begins by reflecting upon the very matter of the cross. To take in our mind the opportunity to think back to that occasion, what motivated it, that for which it stood, and what it means for you and me. It all begins like this. In John 3, verse number 16, Jesus Himself, in that unforgettable conversation, He said, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. And without a doubt, the preaching of the cross is to some foolishness. And I suppose it will always be that way. Paul, in fact, himself highlighted that truth. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 pointed it out so dramatically in verses 17 and 18. The preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved is the power of God. It's sad, but still true. God lets each one make his or her own choice, and to some the preaching of the cross will be foolishness. They'll not see in it the magnitude of the love of God. They'll not see in it the testimony of the enormity of sin. They'll not see in it the appreciable features we're about to discuss today. But to us that are saved is the power of God. We see in that cross the unforgettable reality of the Son of God who died for us, whose blood purchased the blessed church of our Lord. The cross, doesn't it testify and witness unforgettably about the loving response of a merciful God? I hope none of us ever lose sight of just how big sin is. I know we live in the sight of it. We're constantly aware of it. Mankind rarely calls it that, but it's always there. But sin separates a being from God. Isaiah 59, verses 1 and 2, the inspired prophet pointed it out like this, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shorter that it cannot say. Neither his ear heavy that it cannot hear, but your iniquities have separated between you and your God, and your sins have hid his face from you that he will not hear. It's a sad and almost tragic matter to think about being separated from God, to have him in essence turn his back upon you because you have chosen to rebel against him. 
His way is perfect. His law is perfect. Psalm 19, verses 7 and following. And isn't it true that in light of that matter, you and I should appreciate this? You know, I don't know when I committed my first sin. I don't remember it. I can't tell you where I was. I can't tell you what I did. I can't tell you how old I was. But from the first time, there's been a whole lot since. And I am so eternally thankful that the God of heaven loved me sufficiently that there was one who thousands of years ago, he lived sinlessly, never once committed a sin of any kind, of any form, in regard to any circumstance, never. And he was willing to take my place on a heinous and excruciating cross. He took my place. Now, I know your situation is exactly like mine in that regard. Maybe you can remember your first scene. I don't know. But what I do know is there's none righteous, no, not one. Romans 3, verse 10. And 13 verses later we read, All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And I know that our religious world has twisted that, rather notably and claimed that due to Adam's sin that we've all inherited it, that is not right. Sin is never inherited. What my father did, he will answer for that, but I inherited none of his sins. And neither did you inherit of your father either. Sin is always a choice. It is a deliberate, decisive choice to do what ought not be done or to fail to do what should be done. And in that way, we all have made those choices. All have sinned to come short of the glory of God. And now, three chapters later, in Romans 6.23, we note this, the wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. The inevitable and right consequence of it is death. And yet, Jesus paid for the price of my sins, and yours too. He shed sinless blood. He died in that way that was perfect. In the sense of himself being encumbered with no sin, no distancing from God, no separation of any form. And in 1 Peter 2, verses 21 and following, he bore our sins in his body on the tree. He bore them, he carried them, he lifted them. He didn't go to the cross just as a spectacle or a show, although that was meaningful enough. He went there for the express purpose of bearing your sins and mine. May I say, what a reason then to be faithful. I can never repay that. Never. It doesn't matter how long I live or what I otherwise might do. Never can any of us repay that. Because you see, I'm a sinner. I can't repay it. But He did it for me anyway. God commendeth His love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 5 verse 8. I suppose it could then be said that you and I are often impressed when we at least give thought to reflection of that when somebody of his or her own volition will give freely the utmost of their being for somebody else. Jesus did that for all of us. I thought I'd share with you the story of Maximilian Kolb. You probably have read about it, may well have known about it. It is a name that is lifted high in the annals, I suppose, of the behavior of the human family. 
but you can well imagine some of what I'm about to describe. Maximilian Kolb was a religious man. He was a priest, in fact, in a Catholic church. When Adolf Hitler and his group came to power, you may remember that they overran Poland in 1939. Maximilian Kolb was one of those that was taken into custody and no doubt sentenced to a very hard circumstance and situation, sent to one of the concentration camps. The day came in one of those camps where Maximilian happened to be that one of the prisoners managed to escape. As punishment, the decree was, ten of you have got to die. One of them selected was a gentleman who had a wife and children. He pleaded, pleaded, please let me live. He begged the officials, let me not be the one to die. I've got children, I've got a wife. Maximilian Cole volunteered to take that man's place. He wasn't one of the ten selected. But upon hearing the pleas and the cries of this gentleman, he volunteered to take the place of the man. His request was granted. Maximilian Kolb was put to death, as I recall, by lethal injection. That man that lived ultimately made it through the end of the war and was released. As I recall, he only died in the 1990s. I wonder why that man felt the remainder of his days given what that man, Maximilian Kolb, had done for him. He was able to live, go back to his wife and family, continue on with his life, all because somebody took his place. Jesus took your place and mine. There ought not to be enough power in hell to cause us to be unfaithful because of what the Lord did for us. What about reason number two? What shall I render unto the Lord for all His benefits toward me? Look at this motivation. Heaven. There is something standing out there in reality to which you and I can look so wonderfully forward. The desire to inhabit this place with all of its perfection and all of its wondering glory. You and I know that although men often like to use the word to describe something here on earth, heaven is not on earth. It's never going to be here. I understand again that there are religious folks who sometimes try to impress upon us how great the earth is someday going to be. The earth is going to be burned up. 2 Peter 3 verse 10, it is not going to be perpetual. We look for a far better place than this. Think with me about heaven for just a few minutes. Heaven, unlike earth, is a place that is so pristine. And the reason it's that way is because of who's there. God is there. The Son is there. The Holy Spirit is there. The Godhead in full appreciable understanding is all there. May I submit to you, one of the greatest reasons to want to go to heaven is because they are there. Don't you want to be close to God? Don't you want to see the face of the one who died for you? Shouldn't all of us want to be very near the Spirit who in majesty provided us with a book as perfect as this? Isn't it amazing then to think about what a motivation heaven is? 
It's one thing to say the Lord died for us, and that by itself is tremendous motivation. But what about the reality of the place He's preparing? Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. To be where the Lord is. To be exactly for all eternity where He is. You and I well know how the Bible speaks about heaven being a place that's prepared. It's a place of such sweetness and eternality. You see, there will be no leaving of heaven. There will be nobody taking a vacation to leave heaven to go somewhere else. Nothing like that will ever happen. There won't be anything in heaven that will cause one to wish he or she were somewhere else. There won't be anything there that might prompt one to wonder what it's like to be somewhere else. That will never happen. It is the case that this life is the time you and I have been given to make preparation for that wonderful place. I mentioned a moment ago that it's a prepared place. You notice Jesus said, Where I am, there you may be also. A place He's preparing. Are you and I prepared to inhabit it? Prepared to occupy it? Prepared to dwell there? The entrance into that place, again, will not be accidental. Nobody can show up at the day of judgment and not have some preparation that will warrant the Lord's verdict of entrance there, that's not going to happen either. You and I are admonished that obedience to God is what motivates us to see a passage like this one. In Revelation 22, verse number 14, Blessed are they that do His commandments, that they may have right to the tree of life and may enter in through the gates into the city. On virtually the last page of the Bible, the inspired writer pointed out that blessed are those who do His commandments. You and I should be motivated then in faithfulness to ever give the urgency of our decision to keeping His commandments because we want to go there. We want to be there. We want to inhabit that place. Heaven's a place of great, great things. And wouldn't it be fair to say the greatest reunion of all the ages is going to happen? Can you imagine then the group of spirits inhabiting their eternally prepared bodies who are told, Thou hast been faithful over a few things. Be thou ruler over many things. Enter thou into the joys of thy Lord. Matthew 25, 23. You know, there's going to be a group that's going to enjoy hearing those words and forevermore. They will then be in this unforgettable climb of perfection, enjoying the marvelous praises through all eternity of the Father and the Son who died for them and whose obedience they were enjoyably able to appreciate in this life. You see, heaven is the kind of place described like that. But of course, as you and I have often noted, there will be many things absent there, and that will only add to its majesty. No sin there, no harm there, no challenge in other ways there. In Revelation 21.4, we're told no sorrow, no sickness, no crying, no many tears of sadness, no tears of loss or separation, no tears connected with pain or agony, 
nothing like that. What a motivation. That ought to make us also desire to be faithful no matter what. But surely you've already guessed what the next one's going to be as well. A threefold motivation that I could also add to this. It's not only the first two. The fact of what the Lord has done for us and the fact of the place He's got prepared for His faithful. But what about that place reserved for those unfaithful? This too is another motivation that will encourage us by way of great incentive to do what is necessary not to be there. That place the Bible describes as Gehenna, it describes as this English word hell. It's a place that there are no words to describe how awful it is. I know the Word of God describes it to us, and it helps to paint a portrait in our mind's eye, and yet... Don't you know that the full sensation of it is beyond what you and I can fully imagine? I fully suspect that if it were possible for any human being to experience one second of hell, just one, it would be enough to change the fullness of that person's life to the point where there would be nothing on earth beyond what would be involved in being faithful. Only one second is all it would take. Because the Word of God challenges us to note it's a place where God's wrath is fully experienced. We read that in Revelation 15 and 16. We also read about circumstances connected to the unending nature of it in Matthew 25, 46. That is to say, as bad as it is, it'll never end. Never a moment of release, never a moment of respite, never a moment of reduction. I seem to recall... That is, the Word of God describes the fire that's connected to it. It does this more than once. You and I notice in Mark chapter 9, and then again in Revelation 20, we see a place described with fire and brimstone, this unimaginably difficult, painful sensation. When you give thought again to that which is there, it can only be a motivation to remember this. The devil is there. Maybe I should say he will be there. But we are guaranteed of that, Revelation 20, verses 10 and following. We are told for certain that the false prophets are there. Revelation 19, verses 20 and 21. We are told for certain that those two classes of beings are there, the devil and his angels. Do you and I want to spend all eternity with them? Would any sentient, any carefully thinking being want to be with them? It's a place of darkness. Do you like darkness? Most of us recognize that when darkness falls, it brings about a sense of uneasiness in many cases. Finally, there's a place of hopelessness. 2 Thessalonians 1, verses 7 and following, testify before all of us a passage that challenges us like this. To you who are troubled, rest with us. When the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God, and obey not the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction, from the presence of the Lord and the glory of His power. We have at least looked today 
at answers to this question. What shall I render unto the Lord for all His benefits toward me? God has been good to all of us. The health we enjoy, the talents we have, the loving family that surrounds us, the physical blessings like our shelter, our food, our clothing, the set of talents each of us has been given. All of those things you see are marvelous and almost remarkable. And they make our life here not only tolerable, but often there's a degree of pleasantness and such a degree of blessing. But may I say that as far as rendering unto the Lord, it's almost as though the list begins and ends with faithfulness. You and I need to be faithful no matter what. Consistently and diligently and with dedication, faithful to our God. And these are three reasons why what He did for us, because of heaven and also because of hell. Today, as you and I analyze ourselves and give thought to ourselves, where do you and I stand before the God of heaven? If today you are faithful, may that be the guiding theme for the remainder of your days in such a way that you can then look forward to statements like Paul made. I have fought a good fight. I've finished my course. I've kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord shall give to those at that day, not to me only, but all of them also that love is appearing. Paul in confidence and in rather impressive assurance could look forward to in a moment like that one. You know, you and I can look forward to it too. On the other hand, if someone in this assembly is not right with the Lord today, don't you want to be? Because of these three reasons we've learned today. May I say that if you've never become a Christian, it could be accomplished in a few moments if you believe that Jesus is the Lord. And if you're willing to make repentance of your sins and confess His name, we in a matter of minutes could baptize you into the Lord. And you could leave this place being a new creature in Christ. And you could from that moment forward desire to live faithfully. If on the other hand you have known the way of Christianity and you have been infused with its power and you've lived according to the blessings it offers. But as of today, maybe doubt has filled your heart. You've come to be moved about with every wind of doctrine in some context by the ways of the thinking of men. And maybe you have reached a point where you just are not ready to believe anymore in the fullness of what you once did. You know, that kind of faith can be shored up. It can be reinforced. It can be brought back to the case in which it once was. Remember, Jesus said in Matthew 7, 24, to build your house on a rock, such that when things beat and batter against it, it'll not be moved and it will not fall. Today, if we could be of some assistance or help. Brother Cale has chosen a song of encouragement. If we could help you now, we'd encourage you to let us know the way we can. While together we stand and while we sing.